welcome to our podcast. I am your host, Amadi, and with me is my friend, The Grin. And this is a place where we don't shy away from gruesome details where some things may be triggering and hard to hear. So get yourself in the right frame of mind and let's talk about dark shit. Let's do it. I'm going to start our case off by talking about this incredible girl. Her name is Kim Wall. Okay. Kim was born on March 23rd, 1987 in Trelleborg, Sweden. Her parents, this is her mother, Ingrid. She had more than 25 years in journal- journalism. Just going to say this now as I, you know, I can't even say regular English words. There's going to be Swedish words in this and Danish words in this. So this is going to be a great episode. <laughs> okay. All right. As her, long as you're trying. <laughs> her mother, as her 25 years in journalism, she was in general assignment reporter, business reporter, news director, and night news editor. And father, Jockham, for 30 years, he was a photojournalist. Journalist. I feel ashamed of myself. <laughs> in an article written by her close friend, Catalina Clarice in The Guardian, it was said that Kim and her brother Todd grew up with ink in their nostrils, as told by Kim's mother, smelling five or six fresh newspapers every morning at the breakfast table. And that after daycare, their parents would have the kids tag along with them on their assignments. I don't think I have to really say, but with that kind of childhood, you're either going to rebel against that type of career Mm -hmm. or you're going to hop on the train. So she attended Columbia University, earned her master's degree in journalism and international affairs and holds a bachelor of science degree in international relations from London School of Economics and Political Science. I think that's what my thing is. I can't say journalism. Do you need speech therapy? <laughs> I don't even know what to say to you right now. <laughs> In June 2015, Kim and her friend Catalina both went to Gibsonton, Florida, where they were writing an article on the town where American Freak Show came to die. She wrote it for The Guardian US. Catalina says about Kim that these were the type of stories that she loved. She had a soft spot for the misfits, for places and people that did not conform and were frowned upon if they stood up for themselves, always trying to make the odd one out a little less odd. Her freelance work, meaning that, you know, she didn't stick to one publication, gave her the opportunity to travel the world like she wanted. She went to Cuba, Uganda, Sri Lanka, China, and that's just a few of them. She went on to win a fellowship with the International Women's Media Foundation to travel to Uganda and then Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka, she had written about their bloody past and how they are recovering from a civil war. She then traveled to Haiti, where she wrote about their religion and how the Haitian residents seek solace in voodoo. She also got a commission for a feature in Harper's Magazine on how Cubans deliver culture without the internet. Her style of writing was described as one who wrote on identity, gender, subcultures, and often with social justice themes. Kim has had her work published in The Guardian, Harper's Magazine, New York Times, Vice Magazine, South China Morning Post, Time Magazine, and many other publications. Wow. She has done and accomplished so much by the time she was 30. Okay. This is all before she was 30. Like she is someone to look up to. 
In March and April of 2017, she was in Denmark and she became interested in the war to space between Danish inventor Peter Madsen and Copenhagen suborbitals on who's going to be the first to build a rocket and go to space. She attempted to get into contact with Peter Madsen and he didn't respond until August, where August 2017, where he invited her to have some tea and to talk. Now we're going to talk about Peter Madsen. He was born January 12th, 1971 in Sabi, a lakeside town west of Copenhagen, Denmark. Peter's mother, Annie, she had three other boys already when she met Carl Madsen, a man 40 years her senior. They get married. They have Peter. But the marriage didn't last long and they went their separate ways when Peter was just six years old. Annie thought it would be a good idea to leave Peter with his father while she took his other brothers, because she had the thought that since Peter was Carl's son, he wouldn't hurt him. Carl, according to Peter, was described as a misogynist, physically abusive man, fascinated with Nazis. In a biography written by journalist Thomas Gerson in 2014, Peter described his father as a villain, who he compared to as a commander of a Nazi concentration camp for the cruelty he inflicted on his half-brothers. Peter wouldn't get to see his mother much after she left. She met another man, and even though his father never forbade him from seeing his mother, he did tell him if he went to see her, he could never come back. So growing up, Peter started, I think this was around like junior high age. Yeah. He started getting a liking for rockets. So his father built him a workshop in his house. In 1986, he had successfully launched his first mini rocket. And when I say mini, it's because it was one meter tall. Tiny little thing. Yes. I didn't know what one meter was. 3.28 feet tall to be exact. Soon after, he started to study engineering so he could learn about submarines. In 2002, he created the UC-1 Freya the first private Danish submarine using cash that he had raised from organizations. In Denmark, he was the first person to build a submarine by himself. In his 30s, he started to gain a bit of a celebrity status in his creative community of Copenhagen after launching several submarines that he had built just from scrap iron. In 2008, Peter teamed up with Christian von Bengsten, a trained architect from School of Architecture in Copenhagen and also has a master's degree in aerospace science from the International Space University, ISU, in Strasbourg, France. I don't know how he meets meets somebody like that, like his background. Oh, my God. Both of them together, they would create Copenhagen Suborbitals, a crowdfunding nonprofit organization. They designed and flew six rockets and capsules from their floating launch site in the Baltic Sea. But with the type of personality Peter had, he was starting to let the so-called fame get to his head. And one day, Christian asked him to not be part of the last launch. And if he can just work, you know, behind the scenes. Peter was not a fan of this. Not He didn't agree. So he decided to go his own way. And he created Rocket Madsen Space Lab. This space lab of his was in the same lot, I guess you could say. It was in the same lot of the Copenhagen Club orbitals that you can see them right across from the yard, basically. <laughs> they're right next to so each other. They're, they're like that close by. Yes, yes. There was this documentary, and 
Peter Madsen's dock because it's right there by, I'm not sure if it's ocean or it's a body mm. of water. There's his dock. A few feet away, it was suborbitals dock. It's like so close to each other. Like, come on, little bitchy of you. <laughs> a little salty. <laughs> yes. So he was able to fund all this by donations and money he was getting from his lectures. He was doing TED Talks. Oh. In 2016, a documentary director, her name is Emma Sullivan, began to, with his consent, began to follow Peter to film him and his goal to make his way to space and be the first, the first, I guess, man-made or do-it-yourself astronaut. The Netflix documentary is called Into the Deep, and it's still in Netflix. I've heard of that. You have? Yeah, I've heard <gasps> yes. of that one. Okay. It's interesting. Not a lot of people liked it, I don't think, but I think it's interesting, especially what you'll know later, but it's interesting. Okay. So in the documentary, it features Peter with some volunteers from around the world who they're not getting paid. They're just volunteers, but they're just happy to be there to have the opportunity to work alongside with Peter and this mission to launch his own rocket. It was mainly centered around four of the volunteers who would practically be there every day with Peter. And even one of the guys, he was actually living in the hangar. So now that we know a bit about Peter, we're going to go back to the day he asked Kim to have tea with him so she could interview him. And that is August 10th, 2017. Kim was excited that she was finally able to interview Peter. And since she was going to be leaving in, leaving in a few days, she requested for them to do it on August 10th. Kim and her boyfriend, Ale, were throwing a going away party because they were both planning on moving to Beijing, China in six days. Ooh. Kim went to meet up with Peter and where she was staying, it wasn't even far from the hangar of where he wanted to meet. There was a cute little photo of Kim taken when she was leaving of her in Peter's submarine, the UC3 Nautilus, because that's when he decided to have their chat or their interview was going to be in his submarine. It's a cute little picture. Like she, they're already in the water. Peter is faced like a, a, the opposite way. Mm -hmm. And her arms are just crossed like this messy bun, but like the biggest smile on her face. And that was the last photo of her. She was really excited. She was so excited. So when they submerged or went under, she messaged her boyfriend. I'm still alive. BTW by the way, but I'm going down now. I love you. Ugh. He brought coffee and cookies too. Every time I hear about people saying things like that, it gives me like the eeriest feeling. I never put those words into like a message or anything because... Um, what, saying I love you? No, 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 not I love you. It's that I'm still alive or oh. and you're doing something. Or in case something happens, this is how it looks like. Or here's me going, like saying something like really eerie, mm -hmm. but you not knowing and then something bad happens. For example, like I heard of uh, the Malaysia, remember the Malaysia flight? Yes. That went down? Yeah. Apparently one of the passengers took a picture of the plane and said, in case it goes missing. <gasps> and really? Guess what? <laughs> oh, that's crazy. No. So that's how I feel with this. <laughs> Too creepy for me. <laughs> or she was just doing it to be cute, you know, because oh, submarine, like you're going under. I never thought of it as being creepy, though. Uh, the next day on August 11th, the UC3 Nautilus was spotted around 10.30 p.m. from a lighthouse in Kogi, K-O-G-E, 
Bay, Kogi Bay. A helicopter radioed Peter and watched while his mini submarine sank. And this all happened within 30 seconds. In the document Into the Deep, Emma was still recording the day of the 11th. And when the volunteers received the call that Peter was missing and when he was found, he was recorded when he got on land waving and saying that he was okay. He says, I'm fine. A bit sad. Watching the Nautilus sink was distressing. An error occurred on the ballast tank. It took 30 seconds for the Nautilus to sink and I couldn't close the hatches. There was no one else in the boat with me. I was like, wasn't she in the boat? Yes. So Ale, Kim's boyfriend, he was worried because he couldn't get a hold of her since 11 p.m. the night before. And since it was known that Peter went out to sea with Kim since the day previous and no one had seen her because of that, Peter was in police custody since the 12th, August 12th. He told police that he had dropped Kim off at 10.30 p.m. on the northern tip of, I'm sorry, Denmark, Refshelen at a restaurant. But if he did, she would have been seen by then. On August 21st, police were called to the shore of Clydesoen, south of Copenhagen, by a cyclist who had found a torso. Just a torso. And to anybody out there who's listening who get triggered by hearing of body parts, dismemberment, squeamish, squeamish, go ahead and log out. We'll see you next time. Bye. (laughs) A few weeks later, police divers found some more of Kim's remains, about 0.6 miles from where her torso was found. Her remains were weighed down with metal and pipes in bags. He was probably thinking that with all the metal, it's going to weigh everything down. By this time, Peter, who is still in police custody, has changed his accounts of that night. And he did it several times. He tells them that there was a terrible accident on board where the hatch fell and hit Kim on the head. The hatch would be, I think one of the volunteers said that the hatch was about 150 pounds. So that would have just killed her instantly. Mm-hmm. And then he says, as since she was deceased already, that he basically just dumped her body in the sea. Another story was that she died of carbon monoxide poisoning. The pressure suddenly plummeted while he was on deck and couldn't get back in. Finally, when he was able to open the hatch door, a warm cloud hits his face. That's when he sees Kim on the floor. He attempts to wake her, but found her to be deceased. The sad thing is that it was never found out or discovered on how she passed, but along with her body being dismembered with a wooden saw, her genitals were found to be stabbed 15 times. He said that he dismembered her because it was too hard to get her out of the Nautilus. And in his words, I don't see how that mattered at the time as she was dead, but he said this with a grin on his face. Allegedly, Stabbing to her genitalia wasn't sexual in nature, so he says. In an article in the nzherald.co.nz, he says that gases build up in a body when decomposing. They do so in different places. Therefore, I tried to puncture that region. That's the reason he was puncturing or stabbed her genitalia 15 times, because he'd figured he'd be in that region. In Peter's hard drive, there contained a plethora of animated snuff films like 
mutilation and dismemberment, mainly of women. So you had a fantasy. Yes. One of the volunteers in the documentary, his name is Stefan, recalls the day before Peter went off with Kim. Peter asked him if he ever heard of a website where it shows what a body looks like after they have been murdered. Peter never talked to him like that before. So he remembers thinking that was kind of odd. Another one of the volunteers who was digitally altered in the documentary, she was recalling that the day of the 10th, Peter messaged her that they should go on a submarine ride together the next day, that the submarine was driving so nice. And you can tell in the documentary that the realization in her face and her voice that she knew that she was supposed to be in Kim's spot. Oh, no. It was said by a friend of Peter when he was younger that he loved women. And not only was Peter a charmer, but that he found, but women found him fascinating. He was said to be a regular at sex parties and was also on a website called travelgirls.com, a site where thousands of adventurous girls who want to travel. And look for a sugar daddy? Maybe. (laughs) I'm guessing. I don't know. It just sounds like a porn site. (laughs) It kind of does. I didn't want to look it up. So, (laughs) In another documentary called My Private Submarine, he would allegedly pick up curls by using his submarine. He would use the pickup line, you want to see my submarine? Oh, I hope nobody fell for that. That's bad. I wouldn't even know what to say if somebody said that to me. See my submarine? Like, no. No, thank you. (laughs) But he was doing all of this while he was married. (gasps) He's married? He's married. He has been married since 2011. I'm talking about 2017. Yeah. Scum. Mm Mm-hmm. His wife, she was 13, I couldn't find her name. She was 13 years younger than him. And supposedly they had an open marriage, but they lived separately. How old is he? He was born in 71. And this happened in 2017. It's fine. You're using a calculator and you called me out for using my fingers counting. (laughs) 46. Ew. (laughs) Meaning... Are you talking about his wife's age? Mm-hmm. Oh, she was 13 years younger. 33. <laughs> Did you do the math? Did you just calculate for that too? Yes. <laughs> Let me be. <laughs> so, yeah, supposedly with they had an open marriage and they lived separately. I think he was living mainly in Copenhagen, in like near the hangar. They were only married for six years. And then when she found out what he had did to Kim, she divorced him. His trial began on March 8th, 2018, and he was found guilty on, this is really quick, April 25th, 2018. He was sentenced to life for premeditated murder, aggravated sexual assault, and desecrating a corpse. He has been locked up at, oh, I sigh because I get upset at myself because I know I can't say this word, Hersted Vester Prison since 2018. Good job. Thank you. Watch. We'll look it up. It's not even close. (laughs) But since he was locked away in 2018, on December of 2019, he got married. (gasps) Yeah. Shut up. He got married. So while he was in prison, a Russian artist, former journalist, who who was exiled to Finland, was doing a Madsen art project. And when she went to meet him, you know. She fell for him. La, da, la, da. Her name is Jenny Kirpin. She wrote on her Facebook that she was married to him and he confirmed it as well on his Facebook. 
Wait, how does he have access to Facebook? Exactly. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I how? What is going on here? How do they? How does he have a Facebook? He's in prison. The hell? He posted on his Facebook. <laughs> This is how he confirmed it. He said that if anybody that he wasn't going to have internet for a few days, so if anybody needed to reach out to him to message his wife in a Facebook post on January. January 12th, 2020, shared by the son, Jenny Kirpin, his wife wrote, my husband committed a horrible crime and he is punished for that. However, knowing him, knowing him for real gives me an exclusive right to say that I am lucky to be with the most beautiful, smart, talented, devoted, and empathetic person and man ever. My husband is the one of two victims of his crime and staying alive was a punishment itself for him. Ew. 